first of all, my parents never understood me because since the young age, I was different. I was very girly, you know, I, I would like to play things uh, with the Barbie doll and all this, you know, I never was into the football, cricket, that kind of uh, game. There wasn't any kind of sexual attraction towards the girl. It's just, you know, friend kind of thing. And as I started growing up and uh, my interest was boys, you know, sexually started growing more and more. And there was one point I had sex with my partner and that's how I realized you know, I'm gay. And there wasn't any information and anything. So it was difficult by hearing in the mosque, you know, people say, gay activity is haram and you cannot do it, God will punish you. So there was a lot of negative thinking was going inside me and I find out as well, you know, because of just being gay, people will kill you. And so I started hiding myself. Welcome to the first episode of Season 2 of Refugees Stories Podcast. This season focuses on the lives of people who've had to leave their homes because of their sexuality or gender identity. Today, we're listening to Nadim. Please note that this episode includes graphic description of violence against LGBTQIA people, which may be distressing to you as a listener. Nadim was interviewed by our London-based member, Jamie Holton. You'll hear her voice throughout the episode. Uh, my name is Nadim. I'm from uh, I'm Dhaka, Bangladesh. Dhaka is the capital of Bangladesh. Nadim came to study in the UK in 2009. He explains how difficult life was for him in Bangladesh as a gay man and how this motivated him to leave and continue his education in the UK. I had a boyfriend that time, but very secretly. Mm. We couldn't do anything in public. And there was many nights uh, I cried in my own. There was no one, you know, I could go and share my problem and issue. And I was struggling with my identity as well. And I was, you know, I couldn't walk to the street holding my boyfriend's hand. I couldn't, you know, say in public, you know, I'm gay and I'm proud. But when I was hiding, you know, I wasn't myself. You know, maybe I was living my life but inside me, you know, I was living a double life. I wasn't happy. And the other life, you know, I was just doing it for the society and the people to show this is how I, who I am, but that was, I wasn't. And it was very struggle for me, you know, so there was a point, you know, I realized, okay, I finished my HSC, which is equivalent to A level. And I decided, you know, I have to go because I cannot be living my life rest of my life like this. Basically, when I came, because what, what when I first landed, you know, the life here was different because when I, I stepped in here, you know, Soho and everything, it's for me, it was a dream. I never even expected my life could be that easy, you know, as a gay man, you know, finding a partner, like walking to the street. When I came here, everyone was welcoming. There was no one bullying. I come out, I got bullied just because I was different. But here, no one is bullying me. In Bangladesh, however, things are very different. Yes, in 2016, uh, there was uh, two gay men. Uh, they, they they tried to promote LGBT and and they tried to, you know, be little, not publicly very open, but tried to be open. Mm. And there was a group of... Uh, 
a terrorist group, you know, came into their house, broke the door, and with machete sliced them in half while they were sleeping. Nadim is describing the murder of Bangladeshi LGBT activists Sohas Manam and Mabo Brabatonoi on April 25th, 2016. The two men had set up and run Bangladesh's first and only LGBT magazine, Rupan. According to witnesses, six men barged past the security guard in Zulhaz's building and killed Zulhaz and Mabub, in front of Zulhaz's mother, who was injured in the attack. Ansar al-Islam, an al-Qaeda-linked group, claimed responsibility for the murders. Despite the group claiming responsibility four days after the murders occurred, police did not charge anyone until May 2019. Shortly after the murders, the Home Minister Asadazaman Kankamo said, our society does not allow any movement that promotes unnatural sex. So that's one, you know, and then there was another story. Uh, uh, there was a professor in, I think, Chittagong. I don't exactly remember the city. There was a professor in Chittagong. So somehow he was very hiding himself. He wasn't even open. But I don't know how come they find out uh, uh, he was uh, he was gay and they slice him, him up in the university campus. Here, Nadim is referring to the murder of Rezo Karim Sadiq, who was murdered within days of the LGBT activists on April 23, 2016. According to reports, he was not murdered for his sexuality, but rather for being progressive. Nevertheless, all of these murders are a part of an overarching trend of murdering activists and progressives in Bangladesh, which includes secular bloggers and academics. The murders of Zohaz and Mabuk in particular are the epitome of the intolerance and discrimination against sexual minorities in Bangladesh. The Global Human Rights Defense describes how Bangladesh's penal code, section 377, criminalizes same-sex conduct. This law is a remnant of British colonial law dating back to 1860. Although in practice it is rarely implemented, the government has now twice rejected recommendations from the UN Human Rights Council to repeal the law. In addition, authorities fail to support freedom of expression and the police are indifferent to the killings of progressive public figures. According to Amnesty International, instead of offering security to those who receive death threats, the police have instead suggested that activists be less provocative or even threatened to arrest activists or out them to their families. As Nadim explains, And when this, and a lot of time, you know, when the cats, you know, they, they don't punish because they're gay, they, you know, a lot of things is not coming in the public. Some of the things is coming in the public. That's how we know. But so a lot of things is not even coming in the public. Now, I finished my graduation in 2015. And after that, my, uh, mentally, you know, I was depressed because of, you know, my family was pressured, you know, getting married. And I wasn't didn't know what to do at that point. They picked a ring marriage with my cousin, one of my cousins, and I've been saying, I'm not ready, I need time, because I didn't want to marry a woman. I, I'd not be happy, but I just was trying to avoid the whole conversation. Uh, they fixed everything and they gave me the line, okay, you have to come to, in two weeks' time. So I told my parents they never accepted me, and, and we haven't spoken since then and they threatened me, had to find me, they'll kill me. And my parents are quite powerful in back home, so. Nadim's fears about some sort of violence if he returns home are not unfounded. There was a, a 
boy, the, 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 the guy who made asylum claim and then deport him back home. After going back home, within two weeks, he was dead. He was dead because home office said he's not gay and they deported him as soon as he went. He was, he met his family and after a week he, he got missing. His family started looking and they found his dead body in the river. So this story is very saddened because uh, it's even scared me more because I came here in 2009 and since coming here, my body language, the way I talk, the way I dress, it's changed and I don't want to hide my identity. That's the whole reason, you know, in the last 10 years, I was so scared to even go back home and mm. because I was scared, you know, my life would be in danger and uh, I might face a lot of problems. Nadim highlights that he fears he would be harmed by his family, but also potentially by extremist Islamist groups and the government. And a lot of people mentality thing uh, as well. If you kill gay people, you go to heaven. So that's why a lot of terrorist groups, you know, uh, is the responsibility to kill gay people so they, they can go to heaven straight away. It's the misconception they have. Yeah, uh, and there's a little bit of politics as well, because there's a law 377, uh, so which is like, uh, you could go to prison for 10 years uh, uh, if, if you find as a gay police, like special force, which is rap. Doesn't support you if someone torture you, if you go to report, you get into trouble, mm. you get bullied and you get physically and verbally torture, and more impo important, you know, you might lose your life. And even like all these people die, nobody came for it. No justice happened. So you don't have any support from the government or authority, uh, no support from anyone. And, and most important, your life is in danger. And the thing is, even when you're sleeping, you don't even know when you're sleeping, if you're gonna wake up tomorrow. And if you walk into the street, you don't even know you're able to come home because someone might attack you from the back. I wish the people would change their mentality towards gay people. At the moment, there is a big stigma that gay people, what they do is sin and gay people like a virus. When they come to the community, they spread the bias to other people and all society turn into gates, so they have to change it. But I think, you know, we haven't decided ourselves to be gay. We were born as a gay. It wasn't our choice to decide, oh, we want to be gay. It was, that's how we were born, and that's God decided. If God decided us to be gay, that's who we are. We can't change anything. Yeah, so I had a few friends, but I haven't been speaking to them for a while. And after my family found out as well, they stopped speaking to me. Mm -hmm. So at the moment back home, I don't have anyone to talk to anything. So whatever I have here, my LGBT community and the family yeah. and friends and all. So they are the, my family at the moment. Fortunately for Nadine, he's been able to get the support of his British partner. There's many men that have been crying and he's always there and anywhere in, in I need to go, you know, if I don't feel comfortable, um, if, you know, I need support, he's always there, even he's working full time at the moment. 
we talk sometime and uh, I share my you know how my coming out was and my struggle through and my how my family reacted when we talk through he is exactly opposite you know he his 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 mother knew you know when he was young but he never had to come and say to his parents like i'm gay they knew he's gay and what wasn't a big deal you know you're gay you're gay that's all mm. and you know it wasn't a big deal for him where did you meet your partner uh actually one of my friend you know we he invited because he mentioned about you know he have a very good friend he's single as well so he invited us both at the one of the he or event he organized and yeah we came uh, one night so we kind of like he introduced us both and yeah we start talking and we start clicking on we used to meet just for coffee and tea mm -hmm. and maybe weekend somewhere for dinner so the the more I get to meet him, the more I get to know him, and the more I start liking him. The relationship start getting stronger, and then he proposed me if I wanted to live together. So I said yes. So we started living together. So he proposed me to marry him, but at the moment my passport is with the home office, so we can't get married at the moment. So uh, we're just waiting for my passport to get back, so we planning to get married. So later, kind of beginning of 2019, I find out about the asylum, you know, I could make asylum claim because I made a civil partnership application throughout my partner. So I went to see a legal advisor. She said, okay, you can make an asylum claim. So then I called home office and I made asylum claim. There is no asset time, you know, so you have to be patient and don't give up, just, you know, keep fighting. The UK government's decisions on asylum applications are taking significantly longer than before. The BBC reports that in 2014, 80% of applicants received an initial decision within six months. Now, this is only 25%, a quarter of applicants. It can take years before the Home Office reaches a decision on whether an applicant is successful and can stay in the UK. This period of waiting makes people feel powerless and insecure about their futures. To make matters worse, 45% of asylum applications in the UK are unsuccessful. This means that almost half of the people who seek refuge here are told to leave. The Guardian writes that the UK has rejected over 3,000 claims from LGBT nationals from countries where consensual same-sex acts are criminalized. Immigration judges have rejected claims because applicants did not appear gay enough or because they were previously married to people from the opposite sex. This shows how difficult it may be for asylum seekers to prove their sexuality, especially if they've learned to hide it in the past or have negative experiences with coming out. Sometimes, you know, you go for an interview, you have to go. It's not a good memory in okay. your life. There's something, you know, good, good memories and something, you know, you don't really want to remember, you don't really want to talk that. Asylum seekers in the UK are not allowed to do paid or unpaid work while they wait for the Home Office decision. They are also often not able to choose where they live. Not allowed to work and if, if you're not, they give you financial support, but which is £37 a week, mm -hmm. which is not even enough to survive one person. And if you need housing support, 
they give you housing support but which is most most tight outside London. So mm. you get kind of isolated. In the meantime, despite not being able to work, Nadim is still able to socialize through an organization called the Say It Loud Club. I heard of Adelicious and I've, I went and he was very nice and welcoming and he never, you know, even though all the refugee people are depressed and stressed, all the time, every time you go to the meeting, he is the very strong, powerful character, you know, when he talks, you know, he motivates you, you know, he gives you the power in after. You know, when you go walk into the room before you start the meeting, you know, you're depressed and all the problems in your mind you're going through. And when you come out, you know, you're motivated, you see, you know, you have to work hard, you know, as he said. So, you know, this kind of speech, you know, motivates us. And, and I, so I, I, I try to my best, you know, attend as many meetings as possible because when I hear this speech and the way he talks, it's given me energy to fight through. We have quite a lot, big number of people. There's a lot of people. It's like a family, you know. Mm. Everyone helping each other. SA Love Club is a mix of every everything, you know. There's people from Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Nigeria, Ghana, Uganda. Yeah, like a mix of pretty much everything. So it's like perfect rainbow. A lot of people think it's just the people, asylum seekers, they just want to stay here. But a lot of people don't realize, you know, the struggle they have been in the past. And and it's not easy for someone to, you know, come leave their own land, you know, leave their own country and ask for protection when they don't know anybody. Because nobody wants to leave the land. A lot of people don't understand, you know, the struggle we go through. Most of the asylum seeker has been through a lot throughout the life, you know, and they don't want another problem. They don't want another issue. So it'd be nice for, you know, all the people from the UK to give them a warm welcome. And if it's possible to support as much as possible because it, we're suffering a lot and we don't want to suffer more. We are human beings, you know. Uh, if we get a safe place to stay and st stay alive, that's more important, staying alive. A lot of asylum seekers is intelligent. They've been studying throughout the life and they can contribute a lot to the economy. Despite the challenges of the asylum process, Nadim has found acceptance in the UK. At the beginning of winter, I was very struggling because I never faced, like, I never seen snow before. And first time I came, and the first year, you know, was minus six, seven, and, and snow was up to the knees. I adapt the weather and everything. Summer, autumn, winter, you know, I, I got used to it. I like the weather now. And most important, there's so many LGBT organizations. You you have opportunity to choose. It's it's not just okay. This one, even though you don't like it, you have to go. You don't have to. There is like social group, mental health group. There's so many LGBT organizations you can go. You know, last year I've been to Birmingham Pride. Actually, this year Birmingham Pride, Manchester Pride, London Pride, Oxford Pride. I've been to. I like it because I can I can walk on the gay pride, you know, the most busy street, you know, I can, I can, I can hold my flag and walk through the street, there's no one holding me, that's more important. This is the time of the year, you know, we all can gather together, celebrate and be proud 
we, we, we don't have to hide. So I couldn't do that in my back home. So that's more important for me. I say, you know, that we are human beings, you know, uh, accepting us is the best thing we can do. And, uh, and at the end of the day, we're not stealing from anyone. We just want to live our life as open as possible and be freedom, you know, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. live the life as freedom and yeah, don't have to fear for our life. The first thing they have to do is they have to accept themselves because if they don't accept who they are, forget it, you know, the world is not going to accept you. Be proud who you are and don't keep yourself in a closet because I have lived my double life. I wasn't happy, you know, when you accept yourself and when you live the way you want to live, there is nothing better in the world, you know. That was the first episode of Season 2 of Refugee Stories Podcast. You've been listening to Nadim from Bangladesh, interviewed by the talented Jamie Holton, a new member of the Refugee Stories Podcast team. The outro music is actually the Bangladesh National Anthem, a request from Nadim because his first choice, Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive, is a little bit beyond our budget. This episode was made in association with the Say It Loud Club, one of the very few organisations working in the UK to support those who've been displaced because of their sexuality or gender identity. The Say It Loud Club is an incredible NGO that provides valuable community support, as Nadine described in this episode, ranging from social events to workshops and legal aid, functioning as a lifeline for people during what can be the extremely long waiting period after seeking asylum. I strongly recommend donating and supporting their excellent work. The best way to do this is by setting up a regular monthly donation, which I've done myself by following the link through their website on www.sayitloudclub.org. Of course, all statements in this podcast are my own and not to be attributed to the Say It Loud Club. For music, thanks go to Axletree, Vortex, Le Carte Postale Sonore, Rest You Sleeping Giant, Rush Mo, and Stillborn Blues. Thank you also to Nadim for trusting us with his story. I can only hope that these stories go out into the world and help others to understand Nadim's situation and those of others like him. And finally, my name is Jessica Stone. I'm the producer of this podcast. Thank you for listening to Nadim's story. <laughs>